Welcome to the Bagwell Center podcast. This podcast features lectures and symposia hosted by the Bagwell Center for the Study of Markets and Economic Opportunity at Kennesaw State University. The Bagwell Center's mission is to provide a platform for an interdisciplinary study of the importance of markets and economic institutions in regards to resource allocation, entrepreneurial activity, economic prosperity, and improved human welfare. Through extracurricular outreach activities such as guest lectures, film screenings, workshops, fellowships, and reading groups, the Bagwell Center places an emphasis on educating students about the foundations of market institutions and examining the related impact of government policy in a mixed economy. For more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit coles.kennesaw.edu slash econop. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, a lot of people are talking about inflation right now, and for pretty good reason. So here we have the Consumer Price Index. Uh, if you see inflation reported in the news, oftentimes they're reporting the Consumer Price Index. I'm measuring this here on the vertical axis as a percent change from a year ago. So what we are looking at is the inflation rate in uh, each period. And uh, if you look at our horizontal axis here, this series is going from January 2010 to the present. The most recent data is available um, uh, for uh, August here. And uh, our most recent CPI inflation rate, 5.20 percent. That's, that's a pretty high rate. Um, the, the Federal Reserve, as we'll see in a, in a, in a bit, uh, targets, and it has an average inflation target of 2 percent. And if we go back to the 10-year period before the pandemic, right, in, the, in the before times, right, if we go back from, say, January 2010 to January 2020, and over that period, the Consumer Price Index grew at an average annual rate of just 1.78%. And so this rate, right, this recent 5.2%, it looks like a pretty high rate. And as a result, some folks are are getting a little worried. They're worried, uh, and, and interestingly, it's not the usual suspects. Right? So oftentimes you'll hear uh, folks who are primarily on the political right, people we might refer to as inflation hawks, warning about the dangers of inflation. But now we're starting to see people on the political left warning about uh, inflation as well. So in particular, uh, Larry Summers, who was the director of the uh, National Economic uh, Council under President Barack Obama and was a Treasury Secretary under uh, President Clinton. Not widely regarded as a, a right-wing inflation hawk or anything like that, but he's warning about the, 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 the prospect for inflation. Now, the big conversation at the moment is whether or not this inflation is permanent or transitory. Is this permanently higher inflation or just transitory inflation? And so some folks will say, look, this is just an unusual time. This rate is partly so high because the rate last year was so low. This is going to pass. Others, like Larry Summers, say not so fast. Right? Rates are likely to remain uh, elevated well into the future. Now, what I hope to do today is to give you uh, a way to think about this question. I don't care so much if this talk ends and you agree with me or you disagree with me. What, what I hope is that all of us can, can exit the room today with views that are within what I would call the range of reasonable. 
Right, so we don't have these extreme views about this question that are totally unfounded. Instead, we might have some disagreements about whether inflation is going to be persistent or transitory or how much inflation is going to be permanent versus uh, transitory. We might have some disagreements about that, but it will be within a reasonable range of disagreement. And so um, uh, that's my hope for today. But in order to get us to that point, let's start with some, some basics. Right, let's start with the very basic issues here. Like, what is, what is inflation and why should we care about inflation? So, inflation refers to an increase in the general level of prices. Now, sometimes you'll see people, like talking heads, right, talking heads on the news, they'll come on and they'll say, well, gas prices shot up, therefore, we have high inflation. Like, well, no, no, that just means that the price of gas has risen. In order for that to be related to, in order to that, in order for, to say that we have inflation, right? We need a, a general increase in prices, not just an increase in the relative price of one good or service, but prices rising on average, right? Now maybe some prices are rising and other prices are are falling, but on average, what's happening to prices? So we're thinking about uh, an increase in the general level of prices. We also want to make a distinction in order to get at this transitory versus persistent question. We want to make a distinction between trend inflation and transitory inflation. So the trend rate of inflation, this is going to refer to the average increase in the general level of prices over a, a, a prolonged period of time. Right? Not just say in one month or in one quarter, but perhaps over a few years or over a decade, right? a trend rate of inflation. Transitory inflation, uh, on the other hand, refers to a temporary increase in the general level of prices. Now, this can be a bit confusing to, to distinguish trend versus transitory. So I thought it would be helpful if first we looked at just a stylized time series so that we understand precisely what I'm referring to when I say trend inflation versus transitory inflation. So here we have the price level on our vertical axis. Right? This is an index, so it's set to 100 in a base year and uh, tends to grow over time. And it tends to grow over time at the trend rate of inflation. So this blue line here, up until this point, this is the time series we're looking at. And you can see that it's growing at a pretty steady rate. So we have a trend rate of inflation prevailing over this period. And we're projecting that trend, that's why I have a dashed line here, we're projecting that trend out into the future. So if the price level continues to grow at this trend rate, it will follow that dashed line. All right, so we're looking at a trend rate of inflation and a projection of that trend. When we think about transitory inflation, right, this is if that price level rises more rapidly, right, but not for a prolonged period of time. Perhaps Perhaps it's temporary in the sense that that price level then declines and returns to that previous trend and indeed that previous trajectory of price level growth. Right? So prices, they rose a bit above trend, so they're growing more rapidly. We're getting some transitory inflation, but then they come back down to trend and then follow that trend. So the growth rate, growth rate in this period is the same as the growth rate in this period, and so we've returned to that trend rate of inflation. We just had this period of time where inflation picked up for a bit. 
So we had some transitory inflation. Now, I said that this can be confusing because there's also another way we could experience transitory inflation. We could find ourselves in a situation where we experience some transitory inflation and then inflation slows back down to the same rate of growth that was prevailing before this transitory inflation. Right? So the slope of this line here, our, our initial growth path, and the slope of our new growth path are the same. So we have the same trend rate of inflation. But because this transitory inflation was not offset, right, it wasn't followed by some deflation or some disinflation, that is a negative rate of growth or a lower rate of growth, then actually there's a, what we call a level effect on the price level. So the price level is permanently elevated, but we have returned to the same old trend rate of inflation. Right, so in this case, we're back to the same trend rate of inflation, but we're not back to the original growth path. Right? In both of these cases, we would refer to this temporary period where the inflation rate is slightly higher, but we would call that transitory inflation. Right? Temporary inflation. Not part of the trend, just a, a temporary exception. All right, so hopefully we all now have a sense of what I mean when I say inflation, an increase in the general level of prices. We have some sense of what we mean when we say trend inflation, that is inflation over a, a significant period of time, and transitory inflation, some temporary uh, increase in uh, the growth rate here. If we go back to that, that same data we were looking at earlier, the consumer price index, but this time, instead of putting a growth rate on the axis, instead of mapping this data as a percent change from a year ago, we're just going to put the level on this axis. So it's the same data, we're just measuring the level instead of the growth rate. All right, so now we have the price level, which is comparable to this stylized figure here. And I can present those same growth rates I showed you before. Right? From 2010 to 2020, we had a trend rate of inflation that was around 1.78%. Now you can see we didn't, we didn't follow this trend perfectly. Right? We had a period where we were slightly above trend and some, some parts where we were a little bit below trend. But on average, we had a, a trend rate of inflation that was around 1.78% here. And over the last year, that is from August 2020 to August 2021, this price level has grown at 5.20%. Now, you can see just by looking at this picture that part of what's happening here is that since the price level was low one year ago, it's growing more rapidly just to catch up to where it would have been if it hadn't been so far below trend last year. So some of this inflation is arguably just catching up with that uh, pre-pandemic trajectory. But it might not explain, that catching up might not explain uh, uh, all of this inflation that we're realizing at the moment. And of course the concern, the concern for folks like Larry Summers is that this trend rate of inflation will remain high, perhaps even above the Fed's 2% target. Um, uh, it, perhaps not as high as 5.2%, but uh, elevated uh, nonetheless. Okay, so this is the concern that this, we're on a new, th there's the, a concern that we're on this new uh, um, uh, trend path uh, and that this uh, temporarily, this inflation is not just temporarily high. Why should we care about this? 
Well, if you ask my uncle, and just as an aside, you should never ask my uncle. But if you ask my uncle, he will say, well, when prices go up, we're all poorer. And we got to be very careful about that. Right? Suppose that the price of absolutely everything were to double. Does that mean that your wealth has been cut in half? No. It doesn't mean that your wealth has been cut in half. One way to see this is to recognize that every exchange involves two parties. So if you go to the, to the, the local convenience store and, and buy a case of beer, some of you are probably old enough to buy a case of beer, right? If the price of that doubles, you are handing over twice as many dollars, but the store is receiving twice as many dollars. All right, so at best, we would say some people are better off and some people are worse off. But on, on average, right, all of us are producers and consumers. So the dollars that we spend, it takes twice as many dollars to buy the same goods and services. But also, people paying us have to pay us twice as many dollars to provide the same goods and services. And so we want to be very careful when we're thinking about inflation and thinking about what the actual costs of inflation are. We don't want to make this mistake to just assume that since the dollar price of goods and services is higher, that that necessarily means we're all poorer. That doesn't follow. The, the dollar price of goods and services has, has never been higher in the U.S. And yet, the cost, the real cost of goods and services, right? the amount of labor hours you have to work in order to, to buy that case of beer or to buy an iPhone or whatever goods or services you're going to buy, right? it's never been lower. Right? And so we can see that there's a, a difference between what economists call the nominal price, that is the dollar price, and the real price, that is the amount of real resources we have to hand over here. So we don't want to make this mistake. Now, some people, they go in the other direction. Right? If this isn't if this doesn't mean that inflation is necessarily costly, then inflation is not costly at all. Whoa, 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 we don't want to go that far, right? There are some costs of inflation, and we want to be precise about what those costs are. We just don't want this naive view that suggests that just because dollar prices are rising, it means things are more costly in a real sense. So why should we care about inflation? Well, it turns out it matters whether we're talking about trend inflation or transitory inflation. So if we're talking about trend inflation, trend inflation happens year over year over year. And if we're experiencing trend inflation, it means we're going to have to adjust prices more frequently than we otherwise would. And it's costly to adjust prices. If you run a store, and you're going to send the, you know, one of your workers around to adjust all those prices. Well, the time that's spent adjusting those prices are not being spent producing other valuable goods or services. And so we don't get those other valuable goods and services because we have to adjust these prices. 
That's a real cost of inflation. Those foregone goods and services, the goods and services that don't get produced because we have to use time and energy changing prices, that's a real cost of inflation. We also engage in shorter contract horizons. So if you're in a low inflation environment, right? we have a, a low trend rate of inflation, inflation is stable and predictable, you might be willing to engage in some very long run contracts. So you don't have to renegotiate your contracts very often. If you have a higher rate of inflation, right? so think about a labor contract, maybe you have a one year labor contract. If you expect inflation to be 2% over the, over the year, Right, you don't want to adjust your contract every day so that your employer pays you a tiny bit more per hour each day. That's a very costly way to contract. And so instead, you might, you might think about what your average wage would be over this period. And at the, you set a given nominal wage and you recognize, the, and the employer recognizes that at the beginning of this period, they're going to pay you a little more in real terms. As they, uh, then they will pay you on average in order to pay you some given nominal balance, some given dollar amount. And at the end of this period, since inflation is uh, say 2% in this case, they're going to be paying you the same dollars, but those dollars will buy fewer goods and services. Right? So you might reach an agreement where on average they pay you the right amount. But the real value of what they pay you at the beginning is above average, and the real value of what they pay you at the end is below average. And since this is a pretty small difference when we're talking about 2% inflation, it's relatively easy to deal with. If we had 20% inflation, on the other hand, right, then the difference between the beginning of this period and the end of this period is suddenly significant. Right? And so we probably don't want that to last a year. Right? Maybe we would contract every month instead of every year. So every month you would get an inflation adjustment uh, a raise so that you don't have these big swings in your real income over the course of the contract. You can do that. You can contract around inflation that way, but you do so at a cost. If you're contracting, recontracting every month, this takes time. And that's time that you're not spending producing other valuable goods and services. And so once again, there's a real cost associated with that inflation. All right, here's one more real cost of a high trend rate of inflation. Now, this cost is pretty small, and it's getting smaller, I think. Um, but I'll give you an example to illustrate what this cost is. There's a, there's a vending machine outside my office, and it's an old vending machine. It hasn't been up updated to accept credit cards or debit cards. So you have to have cash. Right? And indeed, you have to have nice crisp bills. And this vending machine happens to sell Snickers bars, which I love. And some days I will walk by this vending machine and I will see that Snickers bar. I feel like it's calling my name. I really want a Snickers bar. And I reach into my pocket and I just don't happen to have any cash. And this, I don't think I'm exaggerating to say, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy because we have a vending machine operator who is willing to sell this Snickers bar for a dollar. And I am willing to pay a dollar to purchase this Snickers bar. So there is potential for gains from trade here. But we can't complete this trade 
because I'm not holding enough cash. Right, so that's a problem. It's a bigger problem if this happens on a grander scale. Not just my Snickers bars, but lots of transactions. And uh, this, this argument um, uh, that there's a cost of inflation uh, uh, here basically says that if you have inflation, and in particular if you have a high trend rate of inflation, it's like a tax on non-interest bearing assets like cash. If you hold cash every day, that cash gets a little less valuable. On the other hand, if you hold a financial asset like a bond or a stock, right? That bond, it pays interest. That stock will appreciate, right? And so it effectively gets adjusted for inflation. So in a world where we have a high trend rate of inflation, we have a pretty strong incentive to economize on the amount of cash that we're holding and hold more financial assets like stocks and bonds. As a consequence, that means we're holding too little cash and some transactions go unrealized because we're, we don't have enough money on hand to make those transactions. Sometimes this argument is referred to as the optimum quantity of money argument. You write that down for your nerdy econ friends. Uh, but here, we just think of it as a cost of holding too little money. All right, probably small, but a cost nonetheless. Now think about the nature of these costs. We're not talking about just pr prices going up. Right? Instead, we're talking about real resources that are being used because prices are going up. Right? Adjusting prices, renegotiating our contracts. Or we're talking about real gains from trade that go unrealized because of the decisions we make given that prices are going up. Right? Not having enough cash means we forego some transactions. There are also some distributional reasons and some macroeconomic reasons why we might worry about inflation. And in particular, why we might worry about transitory inflation. So we don't, we don't renegotiate our contracts instantaneously, right? And so if we have some inflation, then, uh, and we're locked into some employment contracts for, say, a year, if we have some uh, transitory inflation, transitory inflation that was not expected and therefore not priced into our employment contract, well, then that effectively means that employers get to pay their employees with dollars that are less valuable than was expected. Now, this is great if you're an employer, and it's pretty crummy if you're an employee. On the other hand, what if, what if you're like me, and I have a mortgage, I'm a borrower, it's a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, so if we get some unexpected inflation, that means I get to pay back that loan with dollars that are worth less than my lender and I thought they would be worse, worth when we agreed to this transaction at the outset. And so this is great for me, not so great for my lender. Right, so we might worry about these distributional issues. We also might worry about uh, um, what economists refer to as nominal spending shocks. So suppose Suppose that I, I run a hot dog stand. Right? Maybe this whole econ thing just doesn't work out as well as I thought it would. Hot dogs are pretty delicious. Maybe I open up a hot dog stand. And suppose that there has been a, 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 a nominal spending boost that I'm unaware of. Right? So this inflation is picking up and I, 
I don't realize that inflation is picking up. But you all do. And so when you show up to the hot dog stand, you are willing to buy more of my hot dogs at the same old price, that is the same old dollar price, because the dollars you're using to buy those hot dogs, they're not worth as much as they used to be. But I don't know that. Instead, I just think, wow, people really like my hot dogs. And I might respond by saying, I gotta make some more hot dogs. Maybe I call up my brother and say, get down here, I need some help making more hot dogs. I call up the hot dog company and I say, send us some more hot dogs. Right? That is, since I don't realize that there is inflation going on, I might expand production when I see you all showing up to, to hand over your cheap dollars for hot dogs because I don't realize they're cheap dollars. I think they're just like the dollars I was accepting yesterday or the day before. Now, you might fool me for a little bit, but eventually I'm going to figure this out. Right? Eventually I'm going to take those dollars that I've uh, worked so hard to earn and I'm going to try and spend them and I'm going to realize they don't buy as many goods and services as I expected they would. And I'm going to be pretty disappointed that I expanded production as much as I did. Right? I worked overtime, I gave my, my brother some income, that guy's basically worthless. And, and for what? For some cheap dollars that don't buy very many goods. Right? And so I might be fooled into overproducing if, there are, uh, if there's transitory inflation. And so we might get some macroeconomic fluctuation, some fluctuation, some unsustainable booms in the economy that we're disappointed if we're the ones overproducing because what happened was we sacrificed our valuable leisure time and our valuable resources for dollars that weren't worth as much as we thought they were. All right, so some reasons to to think uh, that we should be concerned about inflation. What causes inflation? What is the source of this inflation? Well, in the long run, in the long run, monetary policy uh, in the U.S. determines uh, inflation. Uh, sometimes you'll hear people say that if there's more money chasing after the same amount of goods, then the price is going to go up. But David Hume, an economist writing in the 1700s, had this figured out. He said, imagine that the money fairy comes in the middle of the night, waves its wand and doubles all of our money balances. Well, the next day when we all show up and go to the market, we're going to be willing to, to spend twice as many dollars. But we, my friends, have been visited by the money fairy, not the goods and services fairy. So we have just as many goods and services as before, but twice as many dollars. And so we're going to bid up the prices of those goods and services until the prices have roughly doubled as well. All right, so in the long run, monetary policy, that is how in the US the Federal Reserve controls the money supply, is going to determine uh, uh, what uh, inflation, what trend inflation is. This is why the economist um, Milton Friedman said that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. Right? He wasn't denying the prospect for transitory inflation. He was just saying in the long run inflation is determined by money growth, which is determined by monetary policy. All right, how about transitory inflation? Well, monetary policy, as we'll see, can also cause transitory inflation. But there are other sources that, of transitory inflation that we should be thinking about. 
Transitory inflation might result because of what economists call velocity shocks or spending shocks, changes in the speed at which money changes hands. So if we think about that phrase again, more money chasing after the same amount of goods, right? we usually put the emphasis on the more money. But we might, we might think about the same amount of money, but there being more chasing. Right? That is, the same amount of money changing hands more rapidly. Again, if the amount of goods and services is the same, that's going to drive up prices as well. So here I'm thinking about things like an increase in consumer confidence or an increase in business confidence. If consumers, if they start spending money more rapidly on consumption goods, or businesses start spending money more rapidly on investment goods, like plant tools and equipment, factories, machines, uh, if they start spending that money more rapidly, this is going to tend to uh, uh, increase prices. And of course, governments spend money as well. And so governments can spend money more rapidly. Uh, we would call this expansionary fiscal policy. So if the government engages in expansionary fiscal policy, this can also put upward pressure on prices. But we want to be clear whether we're crediting this uh, transitory inflation, in this case, to the velocity shock, be it consumer confidence, business confidence, or expansionary fiscal policy, or whether it should be credited to monetary policy. So in the US, right, part of the Fed's mandate is to maintain a stable uh, level of prices. And so if the Fed anticipates the surge in consumer or business confidence, or if the Fed anticipates expansionary fiscal policy, and we still get inflation, that means that the Fed did not conduct monetary policy to offset that inflation. In other words, the Fed permitted that inflation. That is, it conducted monetary policy to permit that inflation. Now maybe that's what it should do, or maybe what it should do, but, uh, or, or what it shouldn't do, but we want to make sure we credit that um, uh, to, the, to the right source. Alright, how about productivity shocks? Well, productivity shocks, negative productivity shocks, can also cause inflation to pick up uh, temporarily. So maybe we have a natural disaster. We've had a natural disaster in the last year. Right? A pandemic is a natural disaster. It turns out that if you don't if you don't cut down trees for two months, then about a year later, that means you don't have a lot of lumber in the Home Depot. And so the price of lumber picks up. And if you don't make uh, computer chips for a few months, then about a year later, you don't have con computer chips to go into cars, and so the price of new automobiles goes up. And there are lots of other supply constraints that result from a natural disaster. And so as these supply constraints hold, Right? then prices on average are going to be uh, temporarily higher. We might have some legal disturbances. So maybe there's a new court ruling and it makes it unclear how contracts are going to be settled. And so maybe those of us who are thinking about entering into new contracts, we say, whoa, wait a second. I'm not sure, but maybe we need to restructure this contract. Uh, so we might scale back our production until we figure out how to get around this legal disturbance. Right, and so remember we said if we have more money chasing after the same amount of goods, what if we have the same amount of money and the same amount of chasing, but we have fewer goods? Oh, well, that's also going to cause inflation. Right? Or more generally, right, from year to year we get some technology growth. 
we discover some new and better ways of producing goods and services. But sometimes these technology growth uh, uh, spurts are very strong and sometimes they're kind of tepid. Right? Not very, very large uh, technology growth. So if we have some unexpected sluggish technology growth, this might cause inflation to pick up as well. Again, we need to think about whether this is anticipated. Right? Whether it's anticipated. If this is a shock, right? if we don't see this coming, then we should say, well, the transitory inflation happened because we had this natural disaster or this legal disturbance or some sluggish productivity growth. But if instead this is uh, well understood that we're having this natural disaster and we get inflation anyway, then we should credit that to monetary policy because monetary policy is not being conducted to offset that inflation. And again, that might be the right decision, but we want to be very clear about who to credit that uh, to, whether it's the result of the, sh of the uh, velocity or technology shock here, or whether it's the, a consequence of monetary policy. All right, so we need to think seriously about what the monetary authority in the U.S. is trying to do. And fortunately, the Federal Reserve is very clear about what it's trying to do. Maybe I shouldn't say very. Maybe I should say not quite opaque about what it's trying to do. Since 2012, the Fed has been uh, targeting uh, an inflation rate of 2%. It adopted this target in January of 2012. In January of 2016, it revised this statement to clarify that actually it was targeting a symmetric rate of inflation, which meant that if inflation was lower than 2% in one period, it would tend to be higher than 2% in another period. And just last year, in August of 2020, it went one step further and said that it was going to ta target an average rate of inflation of 2%. So first, we have an inflation rate of 2%. This is the Fed's target. But we should be clear here that the price index that they're referencing to target 2% inflation, it's not that consumer price index that we talked about earlier. Instead, it's the personal consumption expenditures price index. Right? So it's a different price index. We're going to want to make sure we're looking at the, the personal consumption expenditures price index, or sometimes abbreviated as PCEPI, if we're going to try to assess whether or not the Fed is actually hitting its target. Right? So it's trying to target 2% PCEPI inflation. Now, it's also trying to anchor long-run expectations, and it says that uh, averaging 2% inflation over a period of time is its objective because that will provide a better uh, anchor um, of the, the price level in the long run. Right? If, you're, if you're expecting prices to grow at 2% over time and then perhaps they grow at a lower rate, right? if the Fed is targeting the average rate of inflation, you know that it will catch back up to hit that 2% trajectory that you were expecting at the outset. So it provides a better anchor of, uh, of the price level over the long run if the Fed is doing what it says it's doing. So given the Fed's monetary policy strategy, given its target, its average inflation target, we can think about two scenarios where we might get transitory inflation, again, if the Fed is doing what it says it's doing. First. 
Perhaps we just have some unexpected transitory inflation. We talked about those supply shocks, for example. Right? If we have some disturbances like a pandemic, this could cause some supply constraints, some bottlenecks. That's the phrase you're supposed to throw around today. Right? So you can get these bottlenecks in the real economy and that drives up prices temporarily. And the Fed, right, it doesn't try to offset those because real goods and services are actually harder to produce. The prices of those real goods and services should rise to reflect that. But in the long run, right, in the long run, it's going to conduct monetary policy to bring that rate of inflation back down in a slow and predictable way so that we return to that, that pre, uh, um, to that 2% uh, price level trajectory. Right? Now, I've, I've drawn this as deflation, that is a negative rate of inflation, but it can also accomplish this with disinflation. That is just, maybe it has a 1.5% rate of inflation for a long period of time. Eventually it will return to that, pre to that, uh, that uh, pre-shock trend and uh, prices can grow at 2% thereafter. So we can see that due to that shock, we can get some transitory inflation. There's another way we could get some transitory inflation. We could get some transitory inflation. Uh, perhaps we have some shock that actually cause, causes prices to fall. Like maybe a collapse in consumer confidence or a collapse in business confidence. We don't get as much uh, spending uh, going on. In that case, the price level falls below that 2% trajectory. But remember, Monetary policy, according to the Fed statement, is committed to an average inflation target at 2%. So when it sees this, it will then conduct monetary policy to bring that price level back up to that 2% trajectory. And that means that in that period of time where it's catching up, inflation is going to grow at a faster rate than typical. Right? The slope here is steeper than the slope here. So we have a, a temporarily higher rate of inflation. Okay, so we have a sense of what the Fed's trying to do. It's trying to see the personal consumption expenditures price index grow at roughly 2% on average over an extended period of time. And we can understand how we might get transitory inflation if the Fed is doing what it's trying to do. Right? In particular, we could get some shock that causes transitory inflation, which the Fed will eventually offset. Or we could get some shock that causes deflation or disinflation, which the Fed will then follow up with policy-induced transitory inflation to bring that price level back up to the pre-shock trend. Now, there are some good reasons to engage in average inflation targeting. Right? There's some good reasons. For one, if it's properly implemented, then it can keep the costs of trend inflation pretty low. Right? So if we, if we target a relatively low rate, like say 2%, right, then we don't have to change prices very frequently. We can engage in pretty long contracts. Right? And so we don't incur a lot of costs of inflation because we don't have very much inflation uh, um, because that trend rate is pretty low. Uh, it can also reduce some of the costs associated with the, uh, the transfers. Um, so for example, if we know that there's some prospect that there will be some shock that causes the price level to rise or fall relative to the trend that we expect, then we're going to be a little hesitant to engage in some long-term contracting. We might incur some more costs to figure out uh, what inflation is likely to be. 
But if instead we know that any transitory inflation is quickly going to be offset or in the, in the not so distant future is going to be offset, or similarly if there's some transitory disinflation or deflation, that this will be quickly offset with monetary policy, it makes it a little cheaper for us to engage in those long-term contracts. Right? And so this, this rule, this average inflation targeting rule, it's not, it's not my preferred rule, it's not the best possible rule we could have, but it's a pretty good rule. And in particular, it's a pretty good rule if it's operated effectively. There are ways of targeting average uh, inflation um, at 2% on average, which would be terrible. Right? That is, imagine that every day Jerome Powell wakes up, he rolls a dice and decides whether it's gonna, the inflation rate he's going to target is half a percent below or half a percent uh, above uh, inflation. Well, uh, above 2% above inflation. Well, that would create a lot of volatility. There's no reason to conduct monetary policy like that, even though on average inflation would be about 2%. Right? So again, the Fed is trying to do a pretty good job here. And it has adopted a rule that allows it to do a pretty good job. Uh, and so there are good reasons to prefer this to, say, some other rules that, are, that would be worse rules. Uh, but we should also recognize that there might be scope for improving this rule as well. All right, so let's assess the performance of the Fed. Sometimes you pull behind a car, right, like a, um, uh, like a work vehicle, and it'll say, how's my driving? With a little number here. So we're going to ask the Fed that, right? How, uh, we're going to ask that about the Fed. How's the Fed's driving of monetary policy here? Now, I've set a couple questions here. First, we want to figure out how credible is the Fed? Has it done what it said it would do? But remember, the goal of monetary policy, according to the Fed's strategy, is to anchor inflation expectations. So, if it's doing that, what it should do is say, inflation is going to be 2%, and then it should deliver inflation at 2%. Right? If it does that, perhaps not in each you know, month or in each quarter, but on average, then we would say it's pretty credible. It has done this thing that it said it would do. All right. So we sh the first question we should ask is, did the Fed do this? Right? It adopted an inflation target in 2012. Did it hit that inflation target? That is 2% PCEPI inflation since 2012. Once we ask that question, we can ask two follow-up questions. But we recognize that there's a recent surge in inflation, or at least in the consumer price index inflation. We'll look at the PCP, PCEPI in a moment. Is this surge merely what was required to catch up to that pre-pandemic trajectory? Right? That is, if we look at how prices were going, were growing prior to the pandemic. We know that prices fell in the beginning of the pandemic. So is the inflation we're realizing today merely what would be required to catch up to that pre-pandemic trajectory? We can also say, suppose that, that the Fed was targeting 2% average inflation since the beginning of the pandemic, right? say January of 2020. Is the surge in inflation that we observe merely what was required to catch up to that pre-pandemic trajectory. And then finally we can ask whether the recent surge in inflation is likely to be transitory. What time does this class end? Uh, 45. Okay. 
All right, so here we have the personal consumption ex expenditures price index. Just like I showed you for the CPI earlier, I'm expressing this as a percent change from a year ago. So what we're looking at is the inflation rate. And I've graphed this from January 2010 to uh, August 2020. So the most recent data came out last Friday. Um, and that is depicted here in the chart. First question. Did the Fed hit its 2% inflation target from 2012, when it adopted this target, to January 2020 at the start of the pandemic? No, it did not. Inflation was not 2% on average over this period. Inflation was 1.43% on average over this period. Now perhaps you think, well, you know what's better than 2% inflation? 1.43% inflation is better than 2% inflation because that means we don't have to change prices as frequently. We don't incur the cost to change prices so frequently. So isn't this better? To which I would say, okay, maybe you're right. Maybe it would be better if the Fed targeted 1.43% inflation instead of 2%. But it's not targeting 2%. And if, it, if, if we thought that it would be better for the, t the Fed to target 1.43% inflation, then the Fed should target 1.43% inflation. That is, it should set expectations and say, we are going to target 1.43% inflation on average, and then deliver inflation that's in line with that expectation. Again, not necessarily in each month or in each quarter, but you know, here, we're looking over an eight-year period. And you know, 57 basis points, it's not a small difference, right? 57 basis points on average, uh, that's not a small difference. So the Fed did not hit its target here. And as a consequence of this, I would argue that the Fed has, has squandered some of its credibility, right? It makes it harder today for the Fed to say, we're going to target 2% inflation. And markets respond by saying, we can trust them. Right? Because we have this long period where it was said it was going to do one thing, and it didn't do that thing. Right? So reasonable people can have a nice debate about what the right rate of inflation is to target. But whatever rate we agree to, we want the Fed to set that target and hit that target, at least over the medium run. We can see here inflation, right, 4.26% uh, in uh, August. Uh, and so uh, elevated, certainly relative to trend. How about those next two questions? Well, I have the exact same data here, the personal consumption expenditures chain type price index. Um, the index value is equal to 100. So this blue line here is the PCEPI. And we can see that uh, the PCEPI, right, it dipped last year, and then it's picked up more recently. And I have two other lines here. The first line is this dotted line, the pre-pandemic trend. This is uh, the, what the price level would look like if we kept that 1.43 average inflation rate year on year in each month so in January of uh, 2020, the price index was 1.43% above what it was in January 2019. And in February 2020, it was 1.43% above what it was in 2019, and so on and so forth. So this, this dotted line here traces out that trajectory. 
The dashed line here, the dashed line here is a 2% projection. So we say, okay, maybe we spot the Fed past errors. Right? And we say, look, you know, it uh, is trying to hit its 2% inflation target. So let's go right before the pandemic and just plot a 2% projection and say, is the inflation that we've realized over the last, uh, um, what is it, like 17 months, 19 months, um, is that in line with trying to hit a 2% inflation target since the beginning of the pandemic? All right, so that's what that uh, black dashed line here is. And here's where those index values uh, are today. So the, the PCEPI has grown about 4.8% since uh, uh, January of 2010. Now that's an annual rate of about 2.85%. If we were just following that pre-pandemic trend, the price level today would be 102.1, right? And so we can see that the price level, right, it's about 2.7 percentage points higher today than it would be if we'd followed that pre-pandemic trend. So this is not, the inflation we've realized over the last year is not merely catching up to the pre-pandemic trend. We have shot past that pre-pandemic trend. We shot past it in February. How about that 2% projection? Well, if we had followed that 2% projection uh, through the pandemic, then today, the PCEPI would be at 103.2. It's not at 103.2. Instead, it's at 104.8. And so we can say that the PCEPI is about 1.6 percentage points above where it would be if it had followed this 2% trajectory. And that makes sense, right? Instead of following a 2% projection, uh, projection, inflation has averaged around, uh, at an annual rate, has averaged around 2.85% uh, uh, since January 2010. So when we go through these questions, did the Fed hit its target from 2012 to 2020? No, it didn't. Is the inflation that we realized over the last year merely catching up with the pre-pandemic trend? No, it's not. We need something, some more of an explanation than that. Is the recent surge of inflation merely what was required to achieve an average rate of 2%? No, uh, it wasn't. Uh, inflation has grown uh, at a higher than 2% rate uh, over the course of the pandemic. That leaves us with this fourth question. Is this recent surge in inflation likely to be transitory? Now, I want to be very clear that answering these first three questions, relatively straightforward. Okay, we might quibble about things like where should we start this 2% trajectory? Maybe January of 2020, just before the pandemic. Maybe January of 2016, that is when the Fed clarified that its inflation target was symmetric. It turns out that doesn't matter, but it, does, it doesn't matter in, in terms of whether the Fed is overshooting its target. It does matter in terms of the magnitude, that is how far off it is. All right, so we have some small quibbles over those first three questions, but they're relatively straightforward questions to answer. Right? There shouldn't be a whole lot of disagreement about these first three questions. This fourth question, is very different in that respect. 
This fourth question depends a lot on what's driving the current inflation and what's going to happen next. And there's some debate about what's driving the current inflation. And there's a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen next. And so what I want us to get at again, like I said at the beginning of this talk, is what's the range of reasonable? Like what's, a, what's a reasonable view or a, a set of views uh, to answer this question? Right? And importantly, what are some views that we should just kick out right, as being unreasonable? So team transitory, right? the folks who say that this inflation is just transitory, they've got some good arguments. right? Argument number one, we had a pandemic. Right? Reopening this economy, it, it created some supply constraints. Those supply constraints necessarily raised the prices of goods and services. We wouldn't want the Fed to offset that, so it should allow those prices to rise. But here's the thing about a pandemic-induced supply constraint. They eventually go away. Right? That is, as the vaccine rollout uh, continues, as people get booster shots, right? as we return to something approximating normal, right, those supply constraints, they relax. We go back to producing like we were. And so that, that price level falls back down to its old trajectory. They'll, they'll also say that the fiscal policy that we engaged in over the last year, right? We were, we were in a pandemic. We did some, some big fiscal policy expenditures because we were in a pandemic. But we're not going to keep doing that now that we're not in a pandemic, right? Uh, it's no longer called for. And so, and the Fed is committed to hitting this 2% inflation target. So eventually, right, eventually, that price level is going to fall back down to around uh, that old 2% growth path. Right, team persistent. Right, team persistent, they make some good points too. Team persistent say, well, how committed is the Fed? Right? We, we might worry about the independence of the Fed. Right? We might worry that maybe Congress and the President will, will lean on the Fed and, and try to strong arm the Fed uh, to prevent it from bringing inflation back down to, uh, to, to where it would be uh, if it were following its 2% inflation target. Now, the Fed is technically capable of bringing the rate of inflation back down, but it can be very painful to do so. But if you go back to the 1980s, right, we'd had some pretty significant inflation in the 1970s and even in the, the, uh, the, the very early 1980s. Paul Volcker is uh, chair of the Fed, right? tall Paul. And right, what does he do? Well, he brings down inflation. And a recession ensues. A lot of people were not very happy about this. Right? So much so that people would, construction workers, would mail two by fours to the Eccles building where the Federal Open Market Committee meets. Right? They were not very happy about this economic contraction that was induced by bringing down inflation. So he did it, but it was costly to do. And politicians, in particular politicians heading into a midterm election, they might not want to induce a recession if that's required to bring down inflation. They might want the economy running hot. 
if the economy looks really good, those incumbent politicians are, are probably more likely to be elected. Right, so they might put pressure on the Fed to run the economy hot. Or uh, they might, right, the fiscal expenditures have been pretty big, so maybe they'll put pressure on the Fed to, to monetize some of this debt. That is to keep purchasing treasuries and remitting the treasury's payments on those treasuries back to the treasury, uh, um, providing some, some cheap credit to the federal government. Or maybe the folks at the Fed, they just lack the will. Right? If this, hey, Jay Powell has to go to a cocktail party. He doesn't want to be the chairman at the cocktail party who just oversaw a big recession. He's going to be standing off in the corner, maybe eating some hors d'oeuvres. Somebody's going to want to talk to him. Maybe there are some sneers. Right? He might want to avoid that. So he might lack the political will that, that a, a chair like uh, Paul Volcker showed. It's also possible that the Fed just wants a higher trend rate of inflation. There have been some arguments in the economic literature that maybe this helps um, uh, lubricate labor markets a bit better, or maybe that it's actually good to run the economy a little hot, induce people into make some mistakes. Uh, um, this might, might result in a more vibrant labor market. Some economists are worried about low inflation causing the Fed to bump up against the zero lower bound problem. A lot of explanations get kicked around. Right, but perhaps the Fed actually wants a higher rate of inflation. And this move to an average inflation target in the last year was just kind of a stealth way of raising the inflation target from, say, 1.5% when they were effectively treating that 2% target as a ceiling rather than a target to a symmetric target of 2%. Right, so that's another argument that you'll hear. Wouldn't it be great if we could adjudicate between these two views? Well, uh, we can, right? at least to some extent. Um, when I want to think about what's going to happen in the future, I like to go to people who are putting their money where their mouth is. And it turns out that bond traders are putting their money where their mouth is. Right? There are, are two uh, uh, bonds that the Treasury issues, two types of bonds. One are traditional treasuries, where the Treasury says, you know, I'll pay you $1,000 in a year, or I'll pay you $1,000 in five years, or I'll pay you $1,000 in ten years, or whatever the case may be. Uh, those are called traditional treasuries. And they also issue treasury inflation protected securities. And so in that case, instead of agreeing to pay you $1,000 in five years, they say, in five years, we'll adjust that $1,000 for the inflation that occurred over the last five years, and then we'll pay you that inflation adjusted amount. Now, these two bonds, they have the same issuer, so they have the same issuer risk. They have the same duration, that is their, the date to maturity is the same, so they have the same duration risk. There's a little bit of a difference in terms of the inflation risk. But effectively, these two bonds are the same. And so we can use these bonds, and in particular, the difference in the interest rate on these two bonds as an, a measure of how much inflation these bond traders are pricing into these contracts. Right? We call this the tips spread. If you go to the Federal Reserve Economic Data website, they call it break-even inflation. It's just the difference in the interest rate between traditional treasuries and treasury inflation protected securities. But it's a prediction by the bond market of what inflation is likely to be. So here, I have the break-even inflation rate, or the tip spread, over the 5, 10, and 30-year horizons. Right? 
And right now, the market expectation of inflation over the five-year horizon is 2.59%. Over the 10-year horizon, it's 2.45%. And over the 30-year horizon is 2.24%. All above 2%, but hold on, wait, whoa, whoa. We don't want to conclude just yet that this means the Fed is going to overshoot its 2% target over these horizons. Because when those Treasury inflation protected securities are adjusted for inflation, they're adjusted for inflation using the consumer price index. And is the Fed targeting the consumer price index? Look at this, so much learning going on today, right? No, it is not targeting the consumer price index. It's targeting the personal consumption expenditures price index. And so what we have here is a market expectation of the consumer price index. What we want is a market expectation of the personal consumption expenditures price index. So we have to adjust these predictions. Right? It turns out that the consumer price index is usually, uh, usually grows at a slightly faster rate than the personal consumption expenditures price index. So we need to bring down these estimates and the question is how much? So I'll give you my view. If we look at the consumer price index and the, and the personal consumption expenditures price index from uh, January 2010 to January 2020, that is the 10-year period prior to the pandemic, it, the difference in the growth rate of the consumer price index and the producer price index is 0.20 percentage points. So one thing we could do, one way we could go about adjusting this market prediction is just to reduce all of those break-even inflation rates by 0.20, right? That's exactly what I do right here. If you look closely, we have the same series from before except for we've subtracted the difference, the average difference between the consumer price index and the personal consumption expenditures price index. Now, what does that say? Well, this estimate, that is my estimate, given the assumption that adjusting this down by 0.20 is appropriate, that estimate of market expectations of PCEPI inflation is that over the five-year horizon, inflation will average, uh, an annual average here, around 2.39%. Over the 10-year horizon, around 2.25%. And over the 30-year horizon, around 2.04%. So what does this suggest to me? This says inflation is likely to be persistent if we're thinking in terms of the medium run as being say a 10-year period or a 15-year period. Right, over the next 10 years, markets are predicting an average annual rate that's 25 basis points above the Fed's target. But we're likely to have high inflation in the relatively short term and then that inflation is going to come down and perhaps even be somewhat below 2% for a period of time in order that over the 30-year horizon we're going to have inflation that's pretty close to the Fed's 2% target. 2.04%. Right? Really hard to argue to complain about a four basis points difference. Right? Now, this is my view, but again, there's a range of reasonable here. So my good friend David Beckworth, who's an economist, he's at the, uh, the Mercatus Center in DC, he's watching these tip spreads as well. But he says, well, 
you know, okay, if we look at the last 10 years, it's 20 basis points. But if we look at the difference in the CPI and the PCEPI over the last 20 years, it's more like 30 basis points. And so we shouldn't be reducing this by 20 basis points. We should be reducing this by 30 basis points. And if we do that, it's not that we're going to have 2.04% uh, inflation over the 30-year horizon. Right? We're going to go down another 10%, another 10 percentage points. We're going to have 1.94% inflation over the 30-year horizon. Right? Recently on Twitter he says, you know, a 30% adjustment is pretty modest. He goes about this another way. He says, why don't we look at professional forecasters and how much they're, produ how much they're predicting for PCEPI inflation and how much they're predicting in uh, CPI inflation. We use that difference. But here's the thing. These, these differences, they, they don't make a big difference. Right? Neither of us are predicting that we're going to have 4% inflation rates well into the future. And neither of us are saying that there's no chance that the Fed really bungles this up. Right? So really it's those views, those views that say we can be completely confident that the Fed is with absolute certainty going to hit its 2% inflation target. Right? We should tap the brakes there and say, well, wait a second. You know, they had an inflation target since 2012 and they didn't hit that inflation target. So there's a chance that they would continue to not be credible. Likewise, if you hear people saying, oh, we've had 4% inflation, 4.3% inflation over the last year, that's going to persist. We're going to get 4% and higher over the next decade. We'll say, well, you know, bond markets, aren't, they don't seem to be predicting anything like that. So that seems like kind of a, an extreme prediction. But there's this range of reasonable, right? A range of reasonable that, uh, that we can uh, reflect on and uh, form our, our own views from there. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Bagwell Center podcast. For more content like this, please be sure to subscribe. And for more information about the Bagwell Center and its programs, please visit us online at coles.kennesaw.edu econop.